to Hillcrest Church Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Good morning. I'm Tim. I want to say welcome. We are continuing our James series today. I want to op- uh, invite you to open up in your Bibles to James chapter 4. Uh, is what we're going to be looking at, what um, Sam just read for us. James is way to the right uh, in your Bible. It's after Hebrews. It's before, uh, before 1 Peter. Uh, but before, before we dive into James this morning, I have a, a, a point of clarification on this series. I want to just talk about some context for the series. So we have created this wonderful art for the series uh, we have a portrait artist here at uh, Hillcrest, Ron Frazier, who we asked to paint a, uh, a portrait of James for us. And a couple of things I want you to know about this. One, we do not actually know what James looked like. We, uh, this is a creation of the artist's imagination, a, a work of historical fiction. And as a work of historical fiction, any resemblance <laughs> to persons... Or pastors in this actual world is pure coincidence. <laughs> Some people have said, are, you know, are you trying to look like James? You are, are you know, somebody said, is it a plot? <laughs> You're attributing a level of uh, grooming foresight to me that I am not capable of. I, uh, I was a big fan of, I watched a lot of Seinfeld in college, and Seinfeld had this bit where he talked about men and women. He's like, you know, women are always asking me, what, what is the secret of what men are really thinking about? And Seinfeld said, I will tell you the secret of men or what men are really thinking about. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> We're just walking around, looking around, and letting our hair grow. There is no plot. So... Um, Thank you for those who have pointed out uh, that there may be a resemblance. So let's pick up. That's enough about hair. Let's pick up in the book of James uh, together this morning. So we're going to be in James chapter 4. We're continuing on. Mm. James, if you're here last week, we're in this middle section of James where he's talking a lot about conflict. And uh, we've talked about how this is a letter and, you know, you can picture in your mind's eye, uh, 2,000 years ago, a small house church, and not a church building, but someone's home, maybe in a, a place like Damascus, a small stone building, and a, and a group of followers of Jesus gathering together on a Sunday evening, gathering by an oil lamp, and, and talking about the teachings of Jesus. Now, we talked about how these, uh, there was persecution around the area of Jerusalem and Israel, and how followers of Jesus kind of spread out to the regions around there, and James as this, this brother of Jesus who was still in Jerusalem, a leader of the Jesus movement, writes this letter to these house churches in the surrounding regions, encouraging them and encouraging them on to, how to continue to walk with Jesus. And that they were, because of this pressure, there's persecution, they move, they're in the new place, they're following this rabbi that many people don't believe in, that, that this stress resulted in conflict. I mean, we are aware stress revolt, results in conflict. And these are communities under pressure, conflict within, conflict without. And James is trying to guide them through these situations. We talked about that some last week, and we're picking up again this week on this same idea. And so I'm going to begin. We're going to dive right in. James chapter 4, uh, verse 
1. Actually, uh, before I read that, I just want to mention this. There's going to be kind of four sections we look at today. I think, yeah, here we go. These four sections, uh, 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 10, 11 through 12. We're going to jump around a little bit to explain it, but I think um, we'll kind of pull it all together at the end. We'll see how this whole section uh, works as a unit. So, but we're going to begin at the beginning, verse 1. And James, uh, he's, he writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? He begins with a question. Last week, he began with a question as well. And he is not literally asking, what are you fighting about? Give me a list. You know, they left a lamp on or whatever it is. You know, it's, a, it, it's not, you know, the music's too loud. It's not this literal list of conflicts. It's what it is, is he's, uh, he's saying, hey, I want to talk about conflict. And I want to talk about the thing underneath the conflict. I want to talk about the 90% of the iceberg that's under water, the thing behind the thing. Because anytime there's a conflict, there's always something underneath it. And he wants to, he wants to offer his spiritual analysis of what's happening underneath these conflicts. And so he continues, uh, he says, he begins, he said, you know, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, uh, James is talking about, uh, you know, what is causing these conflicts? And And he's talking about the thing underneath the thing. And the first thing he points out is, hey, wrong desires... Or, or wanting the right thing in the wrong way is one of the things that is causing these conflicts. I mean, have, when have you ever had where, where your desires have hurt either yourself or those around you? He's saying that's, that's the thing underneath here. Um, now, now, biblically, we, we, we got to remember that... that um, Biblically, this is not, like James is not against desire. The scripture is not against desire or passion or longing or, or deep emotions. When you look at the entirety of scripture, God created us to be deeply emotional beings. You, you know, you read through the prayer book, uh, the book of Psalms, and there's, there's prayer after prayer of, like, of, of, of weeping, of lament, of celebration, of joy and singing. Like, we're meant to be deeply emotional. You look at the life of Jesus, like a deeply passionate and emotional man, a man who, whose heart breaks and who celebrates over people walking with God. Like, we're, we're meant to be people of deep desire and deep longing. But also, biblically, Scripture is really aware that sin can, it twists our desires. That, that, that we, can want, we can want the wrong things, we can want the right things in the wrong ways, and that our, our, our desires can get all twisted up inside. So, so that we, you know, you can want good things. You can, you can want, you can want just like to feel like less anxiety. You want less like peace inside. But then, you know, we pursue it through, through whatever, we put it through screens or substances. Or, or we can want to be liked. We can want affection. We pursue it through relationships that are damaging to us or those around us. Or we, or we want to we feel attractive. We want to we feel beautiful. We pursue it through, through harming our own bodies. That, that our desires can get twisted. That sin twists these things. 
And, and it's not that we're meant to have them. They're meant to be pointed at the right things in the right ways. They're meant to be pointed at how, like, what's good for us. Like, God intends that our desires are pointed at what's truly good for us and good for those around us. Now, sin twist that. Um, I've been reading this book uh, w- with my kids, um, Wing Feather Saga. Who's read the, the, these Wing Feather Saga books? Great. They're super fun. They're, they're uh, like young adult lit, uh, but they're super fun. Great for kids. Uh, but we are in the, the final book now um, as a family. And, the, and the, in, the, in the story, they're describing this almost kind of um, place where the kingdom of God, although, it, you know, it's a story, so they're not using this language, but like where God's heart really reigns, where, where, where what people want and what's good for them and those around them align. And um, the, author, uh, the author describes it this way. Let me just find this quote here. The author, Artham, uh, describes it this way, the world the way the maker intended. And he says, they have always they always have what they want in Nira. And Armulan looks skeptical, but Artham continued. Uh, it's not that the cooks are magic, it's the land you see. When you're walking through that part of the island, the shape of the hills, the color of the leaves, the way the light hits the tree trunks, the cool of the morning and the smell of the crops, all contrive to make you want, desire, exactly the right thing at the right time. What's more, he says, the people of the Shining Isle are attentive to the way the Maker shaped the world. And not only that, they're attentive to the way the Maker made the heart. And they're trying to be good subjects, trying to give one another what they were made to give. So in Anira, what you want and what you need, Armulan said, are one and the same? Exactly. That's the way the maker intended it from the beginning. And the, 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 our, we, are, we are meant to be creatures of desire, of deep emotion. God intended our desires to be pointed at what is, what is his best for us and his best for those around us. Sin, James realizes, gets twists desire. And it's one of the things beneath conflict. So uh, in his analysis, section one, uh, I think we'll go to the next slide. Section one, he says, misdirected desire. He's beginning his diagnosis of this conflict. Now we're going to jump down to section four here because he's going to point out how this causes havoc in our relationships. And, uh, and so uh, let's see here. Uh, chapter four, jumping to that last section, verse 11. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. And then jumping down to verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James is saying, hey, that somehow your misdirected desires are resulting in, in uh, speaking poorly about your neighbors and actually standing in judgment over them. It's been interesting. I've been, uh, I've been reading this book uh, recently, um, The Coddling of the American Mind. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a Christian book. It's a, just a cultural analysis of, of U.S. culture in the current moment. And one of the things the authors do is they're looking at what, it, what, are, the, what are the roots of so much conflict in our society today. 
And when, I, when we started this James series, one of the things we talked about is how so much of the wisdom in James from 2,000 years ago is like people are rediscovering now as, as if it's this new uh, discovery. And it's been interesting. In this, this book, there are three um, lies that the authors say. These three lies, people are believing these things. It's, re- it's leading to so much conflict in our society. And the three lies are this. One, um, whatever, the first lie is whatever doesn't kill you makes you weaker. That any kind of, like, any kind of uh, struggle in life is something to be avoided. Which, of course, if you remember, this is where James begins the whole book. Remember James chapter 1? He's like, hey, when trials or tribulations of any kind come amongst you, God is, God is shaping your character through it. But the second two lies are ones that just happen in the section we just read. Number one, always trust your feelings. Always follow your feelings. And, and James is like saying, amen. 2,000 years ago, James is saying, do not always trust your desires. They will not always lead to health for you and those around you. And then the last section, uh, the last lie they point out, life is a battle between good people and evil people. And the authors essentially are saying that this idea that you kind of divide the world up into the good guys and the bad guys and go to war. They say this, this leads to conflict. And this is James's point. James is saying you've got to recognize the line between good and evil runs through the hearts of every one of us. Don't stand back in kind of final judgment against your fellow human beings. That, uh, it's, it's interesting. When you go through, uh, when you go through James, um, there, uh, when you go through James, over and over again, this theme of like, we, you're supposed to be like God. You're supposed to imitate God's character. Like, you know, have God's compassion, have God's honesty, have God's faithfulness. Like, we're supposed to reflect God's character except in one thing. There's one thing that God does that we are not meant to imitate. And it's in that verse 12, we're not meant to act as judge. This is the characteristic of God we're not meant to carry for ourselves. And I just wonder this question, like, when have we passed verdict on others and then told someone else about it? And maybe that sounds really, maybe that sounds really uh, dramatic, but it's just like we, like we, we, like gossip is a normal human activity. Not normal in the sense of good, but it's just, it's just, it's something that we're all lured into, evaluating somebody else. And then instead of talking to them about it, talking to somebody else about it. And look, you know, sometimes I think this idea of, of uh, don't, you know, don't judge, it can get misinterpreted. James isn't saying don't evaluate, right? I mean, if, if James was saying don't evaluate, then the, the, this whole letter is full of James evaluating action. If you're reading the letter, you're like, James, you're, you're kind of doing a lot of evaluating here. Uh, so it's, it's, that's, it's not about evaluating. It's about this, like, it's about passing final verdict out of kind of a sense of superiority and then talking to somebody else about it. It's a, it's a different thing than evaluating out of love and talking to the person. You know, I'm a parent. I got four daughters. I evaluate actions and words all the time. And I think it would be irresponsible not to, right? But I evaluate my kids' actions out of love, and then I talk to them about it. Hey, sweetie, that's not how we talk to our siblings. Can we, can we talk about that? Let, you know, that's what we do. I don't, when my, you know, when my, when my child, you know, speaks rudely to a friend, I don't call my buddy Jeff up. Jeff, 
You'll never believe what one of my kids said. It was so rude. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. No, totally. No, I'm not going to talk to her about it. I just want to let you know. Oh, I can't believe it. I just don't even know if I can spend time around her anymore. Like, it's not, like, we don't, we, we don't, like, there's a, there's a, there's a difference between, between passing verdict, talking about someone out of judgment with a sense of superiority that's, James says, that, that's when your de- emotional desires, that gets wonky, this is how you treat people. There's just between that and talking to someone out of love. Hey, friend, uh, I care enough about you. I respect you. I just need to let you know this thing that happened. It didn't feel good. And maybe there's more going on, but I just wanted to talk to you about it. Talking to someone out of love. And James says, hey, when, when our desires are, are pointed wrongly, we can, it can lead us to this place where we're talking about people out of superiority and playing the role of judge. It leads to conflict. So the second section, uh, if, the, if it begins mis- misdirected desire, he, he says, hey, and you got to remember, we are not the judge. So then what James does is James really then leads us to the, the kind of the spiritual heart of his analysis. And we're going to go up here to verse 4 where he really gets to, at the heart of things. And James uh, says it this way in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I just, this, that verse, I think, captures this whole section. So I just want to talk about what James is getting at here. He says, you, you, adulterous, you adulterous people. James is not talking about their, uh, their, their, their literal human marriage. He's not saying, hey, there's literally people uh, cheating on their spouses. He t- he, in fact, he refers to everybody in the community in the, in the feminine form of the term. You adulteresses. And what James is doing here, he's pulling on... A long-held metaphor throughout Scripture of the relationship between God and God's people. That throughout Scripture, God is described as the husband to his people who are his wife. That even Jesus in the New Testament is described as the groom to his people who are his bride. And this metaphor is used to capture the commitment and the intimacy and the passion of God's heart toward God's people. That, that, uh, that, that Christianity is not, first and foremost, a religious organization, uh, a philosophy you ascribe to, a set of rules you follow. But Christianity, at its heart, is first and foremost a love story. That at its heart, it's a story of this God, who, who, this, this, this lover who has a beloved and would do anything to win the heart of his beloved. And, and ultimately, it's a love story of a God who would lay down his life, who would suffer to the utmost, who would even go to the grave, that the one he loves would know the depth of his love for them and would reciprocate. Like that is the heart of the biblical story. And James is saying that uh, he's saying you, that ultimately when, you're, when your desires are going wrong, when you're in conflict, whether acting as judge, ultimately the thing underneath even that is that our hearts aren't captured by the God who loves us. 
I think we have this question up there. Where, where are we, uh, have we let our hearts be captured by God? Are there places that we're resisting letting our hearts be captured? James says that underneath it all, this, uh, this is what the issue is. And that this results in our hearts getting twisted. This results in our, our relationships uh, getting broken. We've talked a lot of times here at Hillcrest, we'll talk about these four relationships. Um, that we're meant to be in right relationship with God. We're meant to be in right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with others, right relationship with creation. And what we're seeing here in James is this analysis says, hey, when you aren't letting your heart be captured by God, it ends up your very heart gets twisted and your relationships with others get broken. And have we let our hearts be captured. And so this then brings us uh, to essentially uh, the remedy or the medicine or the spiritual surgery that James prescribes to deal not just with the surface conflict, but those things underneath the conflict that are driving the conflict. And so in verses 7 through 10, we come to the remedy. And this is what he says. He says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. And here, you know, it's interesting. And, you know, you look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4 as a whole. A lot of it, James is describing things. He's saying, hey, this works this way. That works this way. I see this happening. But then in verses 7 through 10, we get, we get 10 imperatives, 10 instructions in a row. Just boom, 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 boom. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, come near to God, wash your hands, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn, wail, change, humble yourself. And these ten instructions are ultimately really only one instruction said ten different ways. Come home to God. Come home to this one who's given his life for you. Come home to this one who's been chasing after you. Stop, you know, those ways you've been resisting. Come home to God. James says this is the spiritual surgery that will lead us back to health. And it's, I mean, and, and it, I mean James, he's pleading here. I mean, you can, I mean, he's piling these, these instructions up. The, the, these, he's like, please come home. And I just, I imagine James's heart, like a parent who's seen a kid run away from home and just saying, please come home. This is the best for you and those around you. Or, or a friend who has someone near to them who's caught in addiction. Come home, leave this, please. Or a spouse who's, who's, who, uh, who's thinking about leaving and their spouse is saying, please come back. Like James is pleading, please come home. This is the root of the issue. And this is, what, this is what's going to be best for you and best for your relationships. This is the ultimate thing behind the thing. And so uh, we see these four sections then working together. That James begins with misdirected desire. 
Uh, he talks about at the end, not the judge, the way it results in conflict with others. And he says, the, really the thing behind the thing is this leaving of God, this befriending the world instead of God. And he says, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate solution, the heart of this, is a willingness to come home to God. You could say it this way, that, that when you rest in God's love for you and seek God's best for others your relationships will begin to look different. Of course, the opposite, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you, uh, you resist God's love, you try to secure your own safety and identity, um, when, you, when you try to use counterfeit wisdom towards others and get them to do what you want, that, that damages your relationships. And James says, hey, if you want to know my spiritual analysis, rest in God's love, receive his love, reciprocate his love, will God's best for others, work for God's best for those around you, or your relationships are guaranteed to begin to look different. And this, uh, this, brings, us, this brings us to communion. We, uh, because ultimately, um, you know, this passage... Uh, the heart of it is this, this called-for response. The heart of this passage is this, these ten pleadings by James, return to God, resist evil, come back to God. And, and so I think even just as I think about my pastoral role, there comes a point where I, I need to say, hey, friend, Hillcrest Church friends, this is what God is saying to you, and now let me step back and give you space. How are you going to respond to his pleadings to you. And this is, the, this is the story. When we come to the communion table, the bread, of course, remembers the body of Christ broken for us. And the, the cup, of course, remembers the blood of Christ poured out for us. This is the, the remembering, the rehearsing, the re-encountering of this love story of this son of God who would lay down his life that we would know the full depth of his love for us and for us personally, that we would know it. And I don't even know it as a head word, that we would experience it, that it would grab our hearts, that we would be captured by it, captivated. And that ultimately this act of God, it calls for a response on our part. Like, how will we respond? Will we come home to God again? And communion is a place where we can do that. We can do this for the hundredth time. The hundred thousandth time to come home again. God, I recognize these are places that I've wandered away from you, and I want to come home again. I want to rest in your love for me. And we can also do it for the first time. We can also do it for the first time. For decades, God, I have been resisting you and running from you, and today I choose to do so no more. I'm going to come home. And so we're going to have communion, and just open up a time for you to respond to God, for you to do business with God, for you to respond to God, however your heart is led. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Church. For more info on this and other sermons, visit us online at hcbellingham.com or join us at 9 or 11 a.m. any Sunday morning, 1400 Larrabee Ave, Bellingham, Washington.